Hello, and welcome to The Delicious Truth with Gloria Cotton. I'm Gloria. During this podcast, we're going to cover a variety of topics that are impacting our everyday lives. We'll look at four things for each topic. One, the absolute empirical truth. That's all about the facts and data. Then we'll look at the personal experiential truth. And that's about how those facts and others do and don't show up in people's lives and their experience of them. Next, the consequential, impactful truth. The difference this makes in people's lives. And finally, you'll hear about resources and solutions you can use to empower yourself and others. I have the happy privilege this episode to speak with my friend and colleague, Scott Hoseman. And we're going to be talking about beginning to examine the structures of racism in corporate America. Let me tell you a little bit about Scott. First of all, we've known one another for about 23 years and had the privilege of working and growing in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion before it was all those three words, first of all. (laughs) So we've been doing this for a long time. Scott is the CEO and founder of Inquest Consulting. He founded that in 2011, and I was right there with him, I'm proud to say. Um, He has been doing this work for 23 years. I've been doing it longer, but then I am a little bit older than he is, so there you go. Before COVID, he spent approximately 40% of his time in the global arena working with organizations and leaders all over the world, helping them really understand diversity and inclusion in their part of the world and how the different isms are impacting them as well. So he's just got his hand in this topic really, really deeply and his mind and his soul too. I want y'all to know I am excited about working with this man anytime I can. And I want to thank you so much, Scott Hoseman, for being a guest on this podcast, my darling. Well, it's great to be here, Gloria, and right back at you, because any time that I have the the honor, the privilege, the gift of being able to dance with you doing doing anything is something that I immediately take up. So thanks for inviting me. What took you so long to get me on the podcast? What can I tell you? I had to practice, okay? <laughs> and you were busy traipsing around the world. So there you wow. go. All right. It's it's fair. And I'm I'm glad to be here now. Thank you. We're talking about and and part of part of our relationship is that we really are doing some hard work and really powerful work, needed work in the world, uh, in our nation, uh, with organizations. But it really is, and we're not gonna delve into this so much, but when you're doing this kind of work, you better be able to have respect between you and the person you're working with, because all kinds of buttons get pushed when you're doing this work. So we are definitely allies for each other, and I'm grateful for that. Scott, let's talk about these structures of racism in corporate America. First of all, what does that mean? When you hear that, what does that mean to you? Well, when I think of the the structures of racism in corporate America, Gloria, I'm thinking about those silent systems that are often going undetected that keep status quo where it is. 
I, I think we have long been at this notion of, oh, we need more fill-in-the-blank representation at leadership levels of our organization. And we, we've, we've pulled all of these levers, like business resource groups and diversity and inclusion councils and you know uh, all the things that we do in the corporate space, yet I don't think we've seen the progress that any of us would say that we desire. And, and I believe that a lot of that is a result of these silent structures that are at play. It's very much akin to uh, you know, the work that a lot of people are aware of in, in unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. You know, these things that are happening that, it might, that are driving my behaviors that I wasn't aware of. Well, if you apply that unconscious bias framework from an individual level to a corporate level, you end up with systemic and institutionalized racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, that's that's a quick view of how I'm seeing it. These these silent systems and structures that are often undetected that are are keeping status quo as it is. Yeah, and you know when I think about that, I think about that as well. But I also think about, in large part, is habit. What are we used to seeing? Who are we used to seeing in those positions? Who are we used to um, interviewing? Who are we used to going to tapping into? And it really requires, I often hear you say that inclusion is not a spectator sport. Um, And it requires mindfulness and then follow through in order to be willing to even be open to considering other people other than who we have been looking at, for the most part, who are men who happen to be white, who happen to be Christian, who happen to be uh, claim that they are heterosexual, um, and who are wealthy. So I, I think there's some mindfulness. So what are some of these structures that we're working with is is more than just hiring. It absolutely is more than hiring, and and I just want to pause and and do a a diversity and inclusion best practice. And for for those who are listening uh, in, uh, just a few things. I go by pronouns he, him, and his. Mm. Uh, so I'm going to get that there. And while you're not seeing me on video camera, I do self identify as. Uh, a white 50-year-old male, uh, cisgendered um, gay male with a, a long COVID gray beard at the moment as well. Um, so I just wanted to offer that uh, and from an identity perspective as we continue this conversation, able-bodied, I should mention, as well as another part of my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about the structures of racism, Gloria, I'm going to give a direct example between you and I, quite frankly, okay. we didn't talk about this. But when I think about the structural racism, um, here's a, a bit of a micro example. Um, in our rate structure as an organization, as the CEO, I bill out at a certain published rate. And as a senior partner in the firm, as other senior partners, you bill out at a certain rate. And that is a rate structure. And that rate as senior partner is a little lower than my CEO rate structure or rate table. Well, 
After the murder of George Floyd and we started having these internal conversations ourselves at Inquest about what systems and structures of racism may exist within us, you and I had the opportunity to co-headline. We were co-headlining these programs that people were asking us to do. And you and I were getting equal billing on these programs. We're defaulting back to this system of a rate table and rate structure that had been a habit in our organization. And for us as a professional services consultant, what pay I get equates to my billable rate. What pay, Gloria, you get equates to your billable rate. Mm -hmm. So here we were doing equal work, getting equal headline billing, and you were making less from that overall headline keynote experience than I was. I think that's a really good concrete example of systemic racism at work. Now, people may say, well, wait a minute, you know, wasn't that happening to your white senior partners as well? Mm -hmm. And, And the answer is yes. And the answer is yes. But when you add that example up for other examples that Gloria may have experienced in her career, the cumulative effect is not the same as it is for some of our colleagues in the firm. So we, we quickly worked to adjust that. Once that came to our awareness that here's a system and a structure that isn't as equitable as we would uh, ideally profess as our intention, uh, we had to do something about it. So we adjusted that rate, uh, rate structure and our internal pay practices as a result. And, and that's just one small example but when you add those small examples up, the impact can be dramatic. And so, we continue to look for more examples like that. So here's what I'm going to reveal. When you said that to me, when you brought that to me, um, I didn't think anything about it. When you said when it came to our attention, no, when it came to your attention. So this is how everybody plays a part in this. Because not only were you accepting and uh, I won't say comfortable because I don't know if you were comfortable or not, but I was accepting and comfortable and it was my expectation. I was like, okay, the man is getting more money because he's the founder of the company. I understand that. Um, And because he carries the title and the weight of CEO. I get that. It's only when you said, yes, but Gloria, you're doing the same heavy lifting that I'm doing that I then had to think, well, wait a minute, that's true. We're sharing equal billing. I'm like, okay, that's true. And so, yes, he is the CEO and founder. And yes, I'm a senior partner and we're doing the same work. And I just want to say how conditioned we are, not only about racism, but genderism also in looking at it's okay if you don't get as much. And there are justified reasons. We have created justifiable reasons for keeping these structures in place. Well, and and you're exactly right. And I I think the the gravitational pull Mm. of systemic and institutionalized racism isn't just on white people. Right. And that, to me, is the point you're making. It's this gravitational pull of keeping the status quo intact, even when we recognize or feel like something may not be right, 
this notion of habit, this notion of this is the way we've always done it, this notion of we've been successful leading up to this moment in time, why would we possibly look to change this? Um, is something we have to fight against in it, new and different ways that we are just, just beginning to hold up the mirror in the corporate arena. I think we're, we're, we're farther along in the social advocacy space in this work than we are holding up the mirror to the corporate structures of systemic and institutionalized racism. Mm-hmm. In my and, and I'm wondering why that is. And I'm thinking one of the reasons is, you know, people who have been part of the system for a long time, we have developed those habits. We have supported them, allowed them. Some of us have fought against them, but the system has been stacked against uh, any kind of equity at all uh, because that's not what it was about. But the younger generation of people who I see out in the social social media and in the world, they've not they weren't burst into this system, into this structure where there wasn't equity. Um, the younger millennials and some of the older millennials, yes, they were. They've been in it long enough now to just kind of go along with it, to have been tired of fighting and to say, we're not going to change the policy of that company. We're not going to change the practice. Yes, let's just count our chickens for what we can get and then go on with it. But I think the younger, younger generations are saying, this is crazy. I'm hearing the good stuff you all have said, and I'm saying you're not living it. And it doesn't make sense to us. And they are really pushing us to change outside the corporate arena. We better change inside the corporate arena. Otherwise, they're not coming in. They're starting their own companies. Absolutely. And, you know, something you just said, Gloria, really uh, sparked a thought. And that was this notion of, of wrestling in corporate America in particular with the the difference between equality and equity. And I believe that one of the ways that systemic and institutionalized racism is reinforced in the corporate arena is because a lot of our, our policies, our practices, and I'm talking about the HR and legal practices, our laws, our legislation in the corporate arena is the fundamental underpinning is equality and the, of everybody getting the same, no one getting something different than somebody else. And we're going to work and treat everyone equal and it's equal access, equal opportunity, that word equality over and over again. And I don't want to, I don't want to diss the power and importance and value of equality, but it is different than equity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we how think, so? how so? How so? Well, when we think about equality, it's it's you and I getting the you know uh, the exact same resources, tools, and opportunities, irregardless of what each other's needs are or the privilege that you and I may have experienced differently in our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That lead us to this moment in time. It divorces. Um, Uh, us from all of the need and privilege and different experiences that our employees may have. 
And on the surface, it, it really can feel like, well, wait a minute, we're treating everybody the same. And isn't that good? Well, yeah, that, that may sound like, okay, get you to give me an initial head nod. But when we think about equity, equity now says, you know what? I want and desire to get the most out of every employee. And I think that gets a lot of head nods. And therefore, I'm going to give every employee what they need to fully contribute their best. And when I understand that their best may mean I have to address issues of privilege, I may have to address historic inequalities, that can feel like it's counter to this notion of equality and attention now exists. And so I think we have to wrestle with that. Um, I, I don't. I, I think we're just beginning to have some of those sorts of conversations in the corporate arena with our DNI diversity and inclusion colleagues, with our legal colleagues, with our HR colleagues. But we've got work to do there. Um, you know, and 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 this this notion. One one more thing, and I'll pause. Is 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 equality to me also? Uh, is often coupled with a meritocracy. Well, we only reward performance and producers, and we only are looking to, you know, we, we only promote the best and reward reward the, this level of excellence. Well, what if you haven't been provided the same opportunity to produce that level of excellence as I have, both inside my organization and outside? Mm-hmm. Well, meritocracy, it sounds like a really nice aspiration, but the reality can be very different, especially when we overlay marginalized communities, oppressed communities, underrepresented communities into our mix. Absolutely. And even if there were, if, if it wasn't a reality of the divide, of the lack of equality, even if everything were equal. You know, when I went to Harvard, you went to Harvard. Okay. Um, I Maybe we have the same degree, maybe we don't. But we've had similar experiences. The truth is that when you look at race in America, even if we come to the table with the same, not just similar, but the same qualifications, then I am not looked at equally. I am not looked at equally. Could be because I'm a woman that I'm sure that plays a part in it. Definitely plays a part in it because I have this beautiful pecan brown skin. But we have never achieved equality. We've never. All of the structures have never. Okay, so we had an interview. We gave you an opportunity to do do the job, but you didn't give me the same support that you would have given somebody who was white and male. So you say, well, I checked the box. We did equally. We gave you a chance to to work on this project, but that's all you gave me. So you could check the box, but it wasn't equal. Never mind equitable. It wasn't equal in the resources that you gave me, in the coaching that you gave me, in the pay that you gave me. Nothing has ever been equal. And that is part of this mega structure to be sure that 
um, people of color and other people who are marginalized are always beneath and always striving just to be equal with those people who wrote and maintained and fed the status quo because it was all about them and never intended to be about us. Irregardless, Gloria, of the intention of the leaders of those organizations. Right. The leaders of those organizations still can have the best of intentions, even from an equality and equity standpoint. But if they're operating from these legacy systems, they don't even know these gaps exist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you and I have, have the honor of going out and collecting and, and many of our team members in the firm, we, we do a lot of assessments where we get the, the gift, as you so often say, of hearing employees' stories hearing the different examples of how employees of color respond to a set of questions the same or differently than their white counterparts, Mm -hmm. how a a, a group of self-identified LGBTQ employees respond to that question differently than their straight counterparts, people with disabilities responding differently than their able-bodied counterparts. We we get this this gift of being able to contrast all of these experiences and and these, these inputs And I am profoundly and continually struck by the level of consistency that we hear in those focus groups and interviews and data collection about what you just described, Gloria, about, yes, I was given, I was told I could take that project, but I wasn't given the access to the network, the resources, and the same support systems that the four other people who took this project before me had and who were successful. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm looked at as like, well, see, I told you they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. 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 Exactly. And you know what? You wouldn't have been able to do it either if you had had the same conditions imposed on you. If you Correct. had been, the door had been opened and then you had no support. Guess what? you would not have been able to be where you are on the ladder of success either. And I think that is what people fail to understand many times. Well, and I I think embedded in the title of your your podcast that you you invited me in for for today is uh, also, I think, a key distinction in, in understanding that there is a difference between being non-racist and being an anti-racist. What is that? Explain that. Well, I think we've, a bunch of us, and I'll put myself square in the middle of this category, have felt really good about the better part of my adult life being a non-racist. I don't go around around using words I shouldn't use. I, I am making sure that, you know, I am supporting... Um, all sorts of, of a variety of communities, particularly communities of color. I work really hard to make sure we have representation in our organization. I work hard to uplift those around me. I don't, I don't do or subscribe or condone anything close to what people would consider racist behavior. Mm-hmm. And for many, like me, proud of that fact mm-hmm. and think, 
in our mind, that has been sufficient. Mm-hmm. When we're moving into an environment, a movement, thankfully, thankfully, even though the circumstances that have gotten us here are horrible, a movement where we are now, many of us, looking at that set of non-racist behaviors and saying, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. What do I need to be doing to actively examine and dismantle these systems and structures of racism that have existed? And I have a role to play in that as a white male. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. But I can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. Can't do it alone. Nor should you. How do we partner? Right. Nor should you. So it is, it's not something that can be done to me. It has to be done with me. Otherwise, you'll miss something. How do you know? You don't know what it's like to live in my world. I don't know what it's like to live in yours for real. I know what it's like to visit. I have a visa to your world, but it's not where I live. (laughs) So we really have to work together to come up with the strategy and then dismantle it. Oh, my goodness. And then replace it. And and I think we can learn from one another. I think we, right now, legitimately so, there's a lot of focus on race. And and, and let's be real, we're not talking race broadly. We're really talking black and white. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And and that's, that's a focus right now at this moment in time, appropriately so. But we can learn and take, take, um, some of the best aspects of some of the work and other movements regarding other dimensions of difference and apply them here. So, you know, something that uh, you just said sparked this for me. I'm very involved in the disability inclusion community. Um, and that's, that's something that I think is, is so often not talked about even near enough in our corporate settings and, and something's uh, vitally important uh, for me as a practitioner. But there is a saying, it is not my own, but there is a saying in the disability community that says nothing about us without Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. Please do not go solving solutions and telling me all the things that need to be done without me being at the table or included in the solution process. I think we can use that here. I think that's something that's really important to apply. Nothing, um, Nothing about race and racism without communities of color at the table. Um, I also think we can look at the LGBTQ community, which I am a member of, and and look at the value that we have received by having allies, those who were not members of the LGBTQ community, who stood for and with issues of equality and equity, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. equality and equity, and, and marriage equality being just one of those examples. That would not have happened without allies. Mm-hmm. So in, in my mind, this is not just a black issue, like go figure it out, Gloria, you all, you all get together, you come back and tell us what we need to do. And, and until you have it figured out, you just keep, keep doing whatever it is you're doing now. That's not going to work. Right. Nor is it going to work for me with my white peers to take the burden and say, yep, okay, that was a system that maybe you know, some of my ancestors helped create well over 400 years ago. So now I've got the burden of solving it all by myself and I better get some other cisgendered white men together and we're going to come up with the answer. 
Well, hell, that's what partly got us in this place in the first, you know, the yeah. first sense. So that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. How do we partner and build bridges together uh, across dimensions of difference and challenge one another to do and be better? Something our colleague Michael Barron talks about all the time. Mm-hmm. I rambled. You got me on a soapbox there for a second. <laughs> that's okay. It It is about one, the discovery and I think people who live in the world of invisibility, people who live in the world of marginalization, people who live in the world of other, um, and other is spelled wrong, W-R-O-N-G, and different is spelled W-R-O-N-G. Those people who don't live in that world, who helped create that world, they really, I think, have forgotten some of the work that they did in order to create those structures <laughs> that are performing so well together that keep them where they want to be. I think they have really, they're too close to it. One of, um, one of my heroes is Stephen Covey. And what he, one of the things he used to say was, fish discover water last. I think some of the people who keep these systems and structures in place are so in it that they can't see anything else. That's all they know. And they think that's all it is. And somebody else is coming to them saying, you know, we need to change these systems. And they're going, why? It's working just fine for you. Yes, it is. But here's the here's the thing. It is not even working as well for them as it could if we were all in it together. Because they're not as successful as they could be. They're not as creative as they could be organizationally. Because they only have one small group of people, one large group, one group that are their resources, whereas they don't have all of the deliciousness from the diversity of all peoples. If, well, they can, if they can be convinced of that, then I think they'll be more on board. What do you think about that? I, I think this is a yes and moment. Okay. Um, so I, 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 there's nothing that you just said that I, I disagree with and that I, I think is, is not valid, but there may be another another side to this and this is kind of coming to me in the moment Gloria. so i'm going to try to try this on i i also think in some of our organizations there's not an inclusive environment for everybody as much so if i am if i am a white male or a white female and not feeling like my voice is heard or that I am valued or that I am recognized. Mm-hmm. And I'm experiencing my own level of dis, mm-hmm. disregard, disenfranchisement, disrespect. It now becomes then like, well, what are you saying? Is yours worse than mine? And are we playing the like one up whose pain is worse? And I, I, I think for some, the lack of, a, of, of, of jumping on board as fully 
is coming from this place of we've got work to do in our organizations around engagement and inclusion for everyone. Yes. And it's really difficult when I'm in pain for me to see how others may be in other types of pain. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying to justify that. I want to be really clear so so no one listening misconstrues my point here. I'm not trying to get a, a buy or a pass for white people not paying attention to what's going on. What I am trying to offer is perhaps a, a perhaps a small sliver of a possibility for why there may be inaction for some mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and why that resistance is there. It, it may not be as much as protecting status quo as why now has the focus shifted over here and no one's paying attention to the pain that I'm under. Mm-hmm. And, and really hard then for me to see my privilege when I'm in pain. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. And, and the, the, what I think we, what we have to look at is not ignoring the exclusions and marginalizations of people, period, and looking at the pain of white people. But I really don't want you telling me about your pain when you don't have to worry about being killed when you walk out your door. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, the truth is that there's a target on my back because my skin is this color. And and I have never felt that more strongly. Um, now, what I see in the corporate arena, no one has ever pulled a gun on me in the corporate arena, but people have stood in my way to keep me from getting ahead as quickly. Not No, no one has ever tried to keep me from getting ahead, period, but not as quickly. It, it still stay in your place. It still stay in your place, even in the corporate arena. Um, even now, I've experienced that um, mm-hmm. with some pretty high-powered board members of this one company we were working with. Um, and it was just I was invisible and I had no voice. So what do we do? What suggestion do you have as we're coming to the end of this thing? Shoot. What suggestion do you have for what we can do so we're not ignoring anyone? We're not ignoring uh, the needs of people who are not Black. But we're also not denying that we're, you cannot compare death to you're not getting a promotion. I'm sorry, but you can't. Absolutely. And, and, not the intention there at all, but I think we need to do this more and shared experience. And mm-hmm. it's colleagues who are sitting, uh, you know, in cubes next to each other. It's over Zoom meetings or Teams meetings or whatever it is that you're doing virtually in the middle of COVID to have conversations about our experiences together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My experience, you and I have had a lot of dialogue about this. My experiences and messages I received about race growing up are markedly different than yours. Yeah. How do we share that with one another so we can work better together yeah. in the workplace? And it's not about 
it is about understanding and discussion and action because you can have all the discussion in the world in the corporate arena and not make a dent in the structures and of systematized and institutional racism. But when we begin from a place of understanding and co-creation of the dismantling, mm-hmm. co-creation of the dismantling, I believe that at least positions us for greater success. I agree with you. And, and here I'm thinking of um, the wheelie luggage, luggage with the wheels on it. I don't know who that was created for or ramps. Let me go for that. Ramps were really created in large part um, so deliveries could be made easier and that sort of thing. I don't think anybody was thinking about people who have uh, a disability with mobilization and stuff like that. They really weren't. It was how can I get these products and furniture and all this kind of stuff in and out of this building faster? That's really what it was created for. But you know what? Look at the benefit now to people with disabilities. And you know what? I have used ramps way before I have, I have problems with my knee now. So I use a ramp because it's easier for me than going up and down stairs. But way before I was having that, I did it just because it was faster somehow for me. I'm thinking about the things that we replace these structures with. People have got to see how it benefits everybody. It, well, it won't be. It won't be the same. Uh, the same kind of benefit for every group, but everybody's got a benefit. Uh, agreed. I think we th- we think about it as taking things away versus what what's yeah. it going to be additive for, Gloria. And I think that's a key key point here. That you know, d- dismantling. You know, there's this there's this notion somehow that, I, and I think it often goes unsaid that. If I dismantle systemic and institutionalized racism and I become truly anti-racist, that there's something that's going to be taken away. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just would argue what's going to be additive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to all of our lives mm-hmm. and productivity and the richness of our culture that we're proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things that I'm looking for and hopeful for that we will together through this incredibly difficult time, um, come out on the other side, a better people. I love it. I love it. The term I use that I, and I think I I made this up, but somebody else probably came up with it long before. I call it pro-inclusionist. And a Mm. pro-inclusionist is looking at human beings, period. Whether it's race or disability or age or a gender identity or whatever it is, making sure that people are just in this and all of us are feeling the four things that we talk about all the time, welcome, valued, respected, heard, and understood. I think we need to have conversations like this, though, uh, at different levels of our organization. I agree with you. Different levels of our government in order to get there and stop arguing and hating one another so much. Well said. Thank you so much for being with me. I am. It's amazing how quickly this time has gone by. I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. And I want to say one final thing to you, Scott Holzman. 
There's a hug in your future if you want one. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow. That was a rich conversation, I tell you, that Scott and I had. Some takeaways, some takeaways. One, we have to have many conversations like this where people are talking with, not to or at each other. Really getting to the core of the opportunity and the weakness. We need to look at pain and scarcity are just pain and scarcity. And many of us are feeling that in the corporate arena and in our nation, in the world. And those things are barriers. They get in the way of our making our good intentions come to life. Because those are the things in which we are fighting for survival just to get by. And that never satisfies anyone. That's a temporary solution that has become a permanent way of life for many of us. The expectation is not even there. Even though we're fighting against so many things, those habits that have been developed to survive and cope with the pain and scarcity of finances, of caring, of promotion, of support are firmly in place. We have to look at those things. Another thing is, you know what? Many of us have good intentions. But good intentions in and of themselves don't automatically yield good outcomes. And what is good anyway? Who's determining what's good and what's not? We really have to talk with one another again so we can determine what's good for you might not be good for me. (laughs) Maybe I need a little extra dash of something. So let's identify so that we can all benefit and grow together. It can't be, you know what, you're growing now and I'm not growing at all, or wait your turn and stay in your place. It can't be that. That's what we've been doing for 600 years. 600 years going back to the um, indigenous peoples. (laughs) So to get to the real issues, to get to the real healings, we have to do it together. And there we are. We have to be in this together because it's affecting all of us together. So why not rally all of our energy instead of pitting ourselves against each other into working for each other? Because you know what? When you succeed, I have got to succeed too. And that's the mindset. You're not looking to be the only one and I'm not looking to be the only one either. If we can do that, then it can be hugs in everybody's future and we'll all want them. In the meantime, there's a hug in your future. I've got it for you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>